This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, here we go with another podcast, and we're just a few days away from the federal election, Rob. Monday is voting day, and the interesting thing to me about this federal election campaign is how the two leading parties have staged what I think have been very uninspiring campaigns. We've seen bad stumbles by Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader. And it was kind of like the Green Party versus the NDP was sort of the undercard to the main event. But in a lot of ways, I think the rise of Jugmeet Singh and the NDP has been really one of the more compelling stories of this campaign. Because if you go back to the start of it, I think a lot of pundits were saying that Singh was a weak leader for the NDP, potentially leading the party over a cliff. And I got to plead guilty on it. I thought that he looked bad in the run-up to this campaign. The NDP were not raising any money. They'd lost a bunch of by-elections. He had done some bad interviews and done done a few verbal gaffes himself. It looked really hopeless. And he's had some amazing moments during this campaign, you know, and you take a look at the polls of the way the NDP have, have risen here. And now suddenly he's fighting for potentially balance of power and minority government. So I think it's kind of rise of the Greens and also rise of the Bloc Québécois in Quebec, which I think is very troubling for Justin Trudeau on, on Monday as well, if, if the, uh, the Bloc Québécois wins a bunch of seats. We could have a minority government here Ooh, next week. That's, uh, I mean, we're experts on minority governments yeah. having gone through that weird um, post-election kind of head-scratching exercise where you realize that the uh, incumbent prime minister is still the prime minister until he or she goes before the house and uh, tests the confidence of the house in some type of throne speech or budget or whatever. So then you have the coalitions lining up and uh, it's uh, it's going to be a fascinating potentially minority situation. I think, you know, Jagmeet Singh's situation in some ways was dire for the NDP at the time, but ideal in the long term, because when you are so far down and in the polls and the expectations of you are so little, you have nowhere to go but up in an election. And he had, I mean, everyone wrote him off and he had a couple really good moments. You mentioned them there, especially when confronted with the issue of racism, uh, you know, wearing a turban on the campaign. Some people uh, made, you know, ignorant comments to him. Oh, that one guy told him to cut his turban off? Right. And he handled it in a very classy way. And I think people saw much more than his policies. They saw, uh, you know, a very classy individual and uh, his personal approval rating went up, but it couldn't have gone any lower. So that was the great position that he was in from the start. So what's your prediction? Remember, we don't save these podcasts, so no one will be able to go back and check to see if you're wrong. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you just take a look at the opinion polls and the way that the vote is sort of splintered among several different parties, probably the safest prediction is maybe a a minority government. Minority liberal? Yeah, I imagine that you'd have a minority liberal situation potentially here, and then maybe uh, Singh holds the balance of power. Maybe the Bloc Québécois ends up holding the balance of power. I thought that Jagmeet Singh, he kind of stumbled a little bit last weekend when he was asked about the potential for a minority and would he enter into a coalition with the Liberals? And he said he'd be absolutely open to this idea. And then the next day he started saying, oh, I don't want to go there and talk about that anymore. So he kind of backed off it. And I think that was a realization that this kind of talk of coalition governments have been fraught with peril. Because if you go back, remember Stefan Dion mm-hmm. when he was the federal liberal leader and he did a deal 
with Jack Layton, then the leader of the NDP, to form a coalition government and take down Stephen Harper, who had a was governing with a minority at that point for the Conservatives. And the deal was amazing. Like there were going to be six NDP cabinet ministers in a liberal government. And when that got out, it was immediately leaked. And that when we had that extraordinary thing where Harper went to the governor general, Mikhail Jean at the time, and asked for a dissolution of parliament, which she agreed to. And the whole deal fell apart. And Stefan Dion had to resign as liberal leader. So, you know, this kind of stuff can be very fraught with political danger. So I thought... Singh made a mistake when he said he'd be open to a coalition. I think that's the type of talk you should wait wait until the votes are counted before you start talking about this kind of stuff. But I th- the other potential is, if not a coalition, would there potentially be something like we have here in BC with a uh, a confidence and supply agreement? Yeah, the, the the key difference there being that a coalition involves the you know one party allowing the other party to come into its cabinet mm-hmm. and it sits at the cabinet table, makes decisions, has that cabinet confidence where it doesn't criticize the decisions of the government. Confidence and supply agreement we have in BC, the Greens don't sit in the NDP's cabinet. Right. It's just an agreement to continue to support their confidence uh, votes in the House. So it allows the Greens to criticize the government on certain things, to pressure them on other things, to come out swinging. I'm not sure. You know, the idea, I, I think, is that distances that party from from wearing what the government does. So if you're holding the balance of power, you don't want to wear it by being part of that government. But I'm not sure if you look at the Greens that it's been successful in some areas and not a big success in some larger areas. So yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure what would be a better position for a, for a, a NDP federally or a Greens federally or a Bloc federally to be part of the cabinet or not. The other wild card here is the Bloc Québécois. If, if you remember, like, on, under that short-lived coalition agreement back in, I think it was 2008, uh, the Bloc Québécois also had a role there as well, that they would have some sort of consultative, formal consultative uh, role where they'd have to be consulted on stuff. And Harper went snaky on that, saying, like, oh, my God, you know, we're going to have the separatists uh, pulling the strings on this government. And the whole thing quickly fell apart. So I think federally, if we end up with a minority result on Monday, maybe a like the most likely scenario is a do-over here sooner than later. And maybe we're into another federal election sooner than we think. It'd be tough because the parties will be out of money. Yeah. The electorate will be fatigued and angry. Um, it'll be a much harder camp. This has already been a dirty campaign yeah. and this it'll, if they have to do it over again it'll be even dirtier so that's uh but maybe it'll be a majority yeah one way or the other so it's it's tough to read this one so i'm looking forward to monday to see what happens speaking of elections it is almost two years to the day for the next provincial election in bc 2021 october the 16th of 2021 wow. is going to be the next election i know we're ha- the halfway Point. And the NDP government changed the election date from the spring to the fall, which a lot of people think is fine, uh, gave themselves a few extra months, which it wasn't the issue. It was more the issue that when you have an election in the spring right after a provincial budget, you don't actually have to see that budget through. So it becomes the fudget budget that you table in February full of unicorns, fairies, and you know uh, streets paved with gold. You run on it, and then you come back and you go, oh, man, those economic situations changed. We can't, we can't put another budget in here. And so the idea was you move the vote to the fall, and that way the budget in February has to play out in real time for a few months. To see, the government has to have to enact it. Good get idea. Voted. Yeah. And, but campaigning in the fall 
in some parts of the province isn't going to be a lot of fun. It could be snowing and, and dark and you're knocking on people. Voters don't like people knocking on their doors in, in the dark. Um, you know, there's just kind of an instinctual reaction to, I don't really want to open. Who is that? I want to open. Especially my if we go to permanent daylight, no, standard time. Yeah, I guess it would be even <laughs> darker. Even darker. So, but anyways, it's two years to the next vote. So we've taken a look. Our colleague Von Palmer in the Sun uh, on October fifteenth. I encourage you to have a read of this column. He kind of called it the rocky road for the NDP at the two-year point. He said that the looks like the ha- the second half of this term is going to be far more bumpy than the first half. And he pointed out a few things that you and I have talked about, Smitty, uh, noting you know the budget update from Finance Minister Carol James is super tight. Uh, they had to dip into the contingency funds, 300 million just to keep it balanced. We've got the forestry aid package that wasn't really new money, uh, that ended up being recycled, including that rural dividend fund, which mayors complained was eliminated. And Horgan told them infamously, uh, well, when I was a kid, I didn't get everything I wanted either, which was a bit of a bungled quote. You stop his- whining like a little child. Yeah. We yeah. Have, not very nice. We have the ICBC rate increase on experienced, uh, inexperienced drivers that we've talked about, including out of province drivers. If you have an out of province driver's license, uh, you're going to lose your driver's discount until you get one in BC. And then you're going to get hit with a new driver's penalty in BC when you get your BC license. So that's going to be a problem. We have Ginny Sims, cabinet minister under police investigation, had to resign. Um, that's, that's an issue for the government. It's first kind of major cabinet resignation. And then you have the last week where we had the premier's chief of staff as a pinata in question period over his decision to shred some documents related to the legislature spending scandal, even though probably he, he may have made most of the right moves in how he handled it. But so that's the two year mark of the NDP submit. Anything jump out for you? Are we looking at a, uh, a turning of the old worm here. Are things changing for the Horgan government? Oh, and also we had the return Vaughn notes of uh, what we used to call Angry John. For a brief moment, he had a scrum in the legislature hallway talking about his chief of staff, and he got very uh, um, frustrated and, and confrontational and hostile. It was the old John Horgan, and to his credit, he said the next day, "Well, that was a learning experience," and he hasn't <laughs> he hasn't fallen back into that Hulk Horgan um, persona that people used to complain that. He seemed like this really angry chipper man. He's been he's he has so surpassed that it hasn't even been an issue at all in his premiership the first two years. Right. But it it flared back for a brief moment there. And I yeah. guess put it all together. What do you make of it? Well, we we've, we've seen more of the kind of the Bruce Banner version of John Horgan, I guess, as premier or for maybe, two years. Maybe in the Avengers, you know, where Bruce Banner. <laughs> And the Hulk get together and become the best of both, the really smart Hulk. I forget that. I guess I missed that. I must have missed that one, that one. But, you know, suddenly it's like the shirt starts shredding apart as he turns into Hulk Horgan. But the liberals would love to see that. They'd love to see the old hot-headed Horgan uh, reemerge. Horgan has called this his Irish temper, the kind of hair-trigger temper that he's managed to keep under control. And the liberals love to kind of bait him. And you remember during the election campaign two years ago when they were really trying to kind of provoke him and trigger him, you know, to hope that he'd have a meltdown on the campaign trail. And they had that rusty, ugly old truck right. that was following him around. And it, they, what'd they call it? The troll truck? The troll truck. The troll truck. And uh, it was an ugly looking truck. It was all rusty and gnarly looking truck. And they had a big picture of Horgan on the side of it, scowling, ugly picture of Horgan. And this thing was would follow him around on the campaign trail. So every campaign event he would do, this this truck would roll by. And it was kind of the liberals are kind of hoping he was getting he'd get mad. He'd get angry on camera. And um 
I remember one time, but he kept it pretty cool though. Yeah, you he know, did. like he didn't really, he didn't really rise to the bait. And uh, I remember one time, Corgan was doing a, a campaign event in some guy's living room, and they were talking about their hydro bills or something. And all of a sudden, I look out the window, and here's the troll truck comes rolling by with this ugly picture of Horgan. And I, I pointed out the window, and I said to him, I said, uh, I go, Mr. Horgan, there's that truck again. And Horgan looked out and saw the troll truck. And his line was, well, at least at least Christy Clark created one job, the guy who's <laughs> driving this truck. So, And everyone laughed. So he turned it into a kind of a laugh line. Anyway, long-winded story to say he's kind of kept his... Uh, temper under control but if things start to go bad maybe the bad old horgan comes out and i think that was a good list of um the flashpoints there and the and the potential jeopardy the ndp's in i think another one is if the economy starts to wobble a little bit like if the economy starts to go take a little dive and it can be somehow pinned on ndp government policy that maybe they're to blame for high gas prices or whatever, or high taxes and regulation. I think that's a danger sign for them too. So I, I, I agree with Vaughn that I think the second half of the mandate is going to be tougher. Well, if the economy turns, like you mentioned, and, and as it is turning now, uh, it means less money in the provincial treasury to do things that New Democrats promised. And that is going to disappoint some of their allies. I mean, you look at the teachers right now trying to negotiate a contract, unable to get anything more than the government's 2-2-2 two, two and two mandate for all the other unions due to the economic uh, situation of government. You have the finance minister curtailing discretionary spending in all the ministries. I think, you know, this second half of the mandate, if the economy stays where it is, is going to be a, a hold steady grasp with your fingernails, keep the budget balanced, yeah. find the pennies in the couch cushions and not fulfill some of the promises that they would like to fulfill for their allies because they just don't have the money to do it. And things like, again, raising um, social assistance or shelter rates or disability rates, those things will be off the table if the surplus is, is in trouble for the Treasury. So it may be a frustrating final two years for the New Democrats unless they plan on either creating new tax uh, revenues or shuttering some old government programs because it, it all comes down to money at the end of the day on, on what you can and can't afford to do. I guess maybe one advantage they do have is, is an opposition that's, I don't know, it's not the fiercest, best opposition I've ever seen in the Liberals. And Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberal leader, is a guy, when he won the Liberal leadership, I think the NDP were kind of secret, secretly pleased to see him in there. They were, they were uh, I think, glad that maybe a fresh brighter, more appealing new leader didn't go in. It was He's more of a, a guy who'd been around during the bad old days and the latter days of the Christy Clark government as a cabinet minister. And I don't know, he's, he's had some good moments and bad moments, I think, as opposition leader. If things unfold the way they're starting to break right now, maybe it works to the Liberals' advantage on things like, we've talked many times about ICBC. You did a really good story on ICBC rates as it applies to out-of-province drivers and how they're experiencing some rate shock. And there's lots of people getting surprising ICBC bills. That's one that's potentially right in the Liberals' wheelhouse here to tee off on and say, like, try and politically pin that on the NDP. And maybe that's a good thing for Wilkinson. And if he starts to become more appealing as an alternative, maybe that's more bad news for the for the NDP as well. But I think overall, though, Wilkinson is not the most dynamic leader that we've seen in the opposition side of the House. And maybe that's 
one thing that the NDP can say, well, at least we don't have someone breathing down our necks who's lighting the world on fire. The only uh, thing the NDP have to fear right now is themselves and those self-inflicted yeah. errors and things like Ginny Sims ending up, in, you know, cabinet ministers ending up in uh, their own internal scandals or whatnot. So you're right. I mean, if Wilkinson's not that strong, then it becomes the NDP, uh, you know, using that old uh, sports metaphor, discipline, right? Don't take any penalties after the whistle blows. Just kind of keep it calm and try to maintain your footing. So that's, uh, it's an interesting, I mean, <laughs> two-year mark to the next election. It's hard to imagine that being out in the campaign trail in 2021, but here we are. Yeah. Um, halfway there. Halfway. The other never-ending uh, situation we've been talking about, the legislature spending scandal, you sat down with... Daryl Plekis, the Speaker of the House uh, in the province on the weekend. Have a read of that in the newspaper or online uh, for the full kind of details of this interview. But uh, what stood out you uh, from what Daryl Plekis had to say? We talked a whole bunch of things. Uh, We talked about this latest report out from Doug Lepard, the former Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department, who wrote this report about Gary Lenz, the now-resigned Sergeant-at-Arms in the building. And we talked about that on last week's podcast. The report focused around this 2013 removal of a truckload of alcohol from the legislature and whether that was properly investigated and who knew what and did he tell the truth about it. So we talked about that. And then you mentioned the the other interesting revelation in that report about this fact that Jeff Meggs, the chief of staff to Premier John Horgan, Four months before the whole legislature scandal blew up in the public last year was shown a report that outlined a a bunch of misconduct, alleged misconduct of the legislature. And he looked at it and he told Plekis, the speaker, go to the cops. That's my advice to you is call the police, which I think is good advice. Mm -hmm. But then he also he took this report that Plekis had showed him. And he fed it into a shredder. So he shredded it. And the liberals jumped all over that and said, this is destruction of evidence. It's obstruction of justice, Wilkinson called it. So trying to, you know, take the legislature spending scandal and now kind of try and turn it against the NDP, saying like, you guys had advance notice of this and you should have done more with it, which is an interesting Discussion, And I asked Plekis about it, and Plekis told me that, yeah, he gave they showed this report to uh, Megs, but he didn't think that Megs did anything wrong by shredding the document because he said it was a duplicate document anyway. And interestingly, he, he told me that they already gave that document to the police even before that meeting with Megs. So if you remember when this whole spending scandal blew up last year, we were at, we asked uh, Plekis and his chief of staff, Alan Mullen, when did you guys tell the cops about this? And they said late August. Remember that? They said yep. late August. Well, now they're saying that, well, actually, we were talking to the police in June and July before this meeting with Megs. The point is that they're saying that we told the cops already about what was going on and Megs didn't do anything wrong shredding this document. So that, that's an interesting wrinkle on that element. He told a, said a couple of other interesting things to me. He said that he's got more reports to come. Um, he said there's going to be a report on all these whistleblowers, he says, that have been trooping into his office. He says he's talked to about 20 former employees 
at the legislature, many of whom were, he says, were fired after they spoke up about wrongdoing they were witnessing at the building. And he's got a report coming out on that. He said that Alan Mullen, as chief of staff, will have a report coming out on spending at the legislature on security, which they say they're spending too much on overtime. And he also hinted there were some other revelations to come. So anyway, it's always interesting to talk to this guy. And another thing he told me was he's not planning to run again. He represents Abbotsford in the House. He said that's it for him. So So, so he's got two years left to enact the reforms that he wants to see. That's right. So he said that he intends to continue cleaning this place up, as he puts it, continuing to raise hell and in the place and continuing to be a bull in a china shop around here. And then he's out of here. He's not going to run for re-election. And I said to him, you know, the liberals kicked him out of the party. Remember, remember, he was a liberal MLA and the liberals were so mad that he took the speaker's job in the first place. They actually kicked him out of the party. So he's not a liberal anymore. But I said, could you potentially run for re-election as an independent in Abbotsford? I got a feeling maybe you'd have a shot to get re-elected. And his answer to me was, you could give me $100 million and I would not run. I'm not sure I believe him. No. But <laughs> $100 million is a lot of money. But he said, his point was, he said, he made it very clear he's not going to run again, which is interesting too. Well, it puts him in a good position. If he does want to enact unpopular reforms here among some people... Uh, who better than an MLA who's not running again to get the job done, right? I think that's a, if we're going to get that down into the weeds of fixing this building and what's going on, then it's probably a good idea to have someone who's not going to have to worry about, um, you know, the, the reelection campaign and the fundraising and all the stuff that kind of goes with that. You just focus on the building. So that seems, I, I imagine he can get a lot done in the next two years if he wants to do it. But, uh, well, you haven't heard the end of this story because we've got workplace reviews. We've got, more audits coming. We've got Lamsey trying to find the all-party legislature committee, trying to find a new clerk. We've got uh, the search for a new sergeant at arms. I'm sure the security system is going to get changed. RCMP are investigating. Still. The RCMP, and they're not, I mean, who knows when that's going to happen. I encourage people to go read your uh, your column online on the province and get the kind of the There's a video, video online, too, of an interview with him as well. Yeah. Check out. Uh, he mentioned, well, it didn't actually come up in this segment, but we mentioned it last week, Linda Reed refusing to participate in the report that you were just talking about there, the Lepard report that the Speaker had commissioned into the Sergeant-at-Arms, uh, Linda Reed, the liberal, longtime liberal MLA, uh, who uh, just <laughs> is now under fire yet again for not participating uh, in, in uh, this investigation, even though she said that she would, uh, instead doing it through her lawyer, brings up the constant issue we have here of the need to maybe refresh the BC Liberal Party if they hope to uh, kind of gain some momentum two years from now in the next election. Linda Reed has not announced what she's going to do in her future, but one uh, Liberal MLA did announce that he will not be running for re-election. That's Ralph Sultan, uh, who is the MLA for Vancouver West Capilano, who's a fascinating guy here. You probably haven't heard much about him. He's 85 years old became the oldest person to be elected in BC history uh, at the age of 83 in the last election. He is a professional engineer. He has a PhD in economics from Harvard University. He was an associate professor, the chief economist of Royal Bank Canada, and then the senior vice president. He is uh, probably the most accomplished MLA in the legislature, maybe behind uh, Andrew Wilkinson being a doctor and a lawyer, but the most accomplished MLA in the legislature you've never heard of, who has really never been a cabinet minister. He briefly served as minister of advanced education in the kind of 
tumultuous years before the 2013 election of Christy Clark when cabinet ministers were quitting and people weren't running again. Didn't do it for long and didn't really do anything. But I've always thought he's the smartest guy here who never had a job. He sat on yeah. the back bench. He made private member speeches occasionally during question period. He'd uh, zone out for a quick nap because he had nothing to do. <laughs> you could catch him when you're watching the – if the camera was in the right location, you could watch his head kind of drop a little bit as he <laughs> as he had a quick nap in the house, which I always thought was kind of endearing. In a, well, come on. The guy's – how old is he? He's 85 years 80, old. Come on. The guy's 85. So he's not running again. I think there's – you know, one – it says something about – the problem that Ralph Sultan had is that he got on the bad side of Gordon Campbell very early on in Campbell's tenure uh, and uh, I guess thought maybe he could speak a little bit more freely about what he would like to happen within that party when uh, Mr. Campbell was not known for taking such advice in uh, in well-received uh, uh, fashion. So there was that problem. And then, you know, when Christy Clark didn't win her riding in the 2013 election and had to seek a by-election, there was a lot of talk that she wanted Ralph Sultan to step aside so she could run in that riding. And he refused. And she ended up taking Ben Stewart's riding in Kelowna. And I think that probably put uh, Ralph Sultan in a bit of the uh, freezer box uh, for the rest of Christy Clark's tenure as well. So here's a hmm. very accomplished guy who never made it into cabinet, an example of the kind of the waste of our parliamentary system when smart people like that aren't being used to their potential. But he is not the kind of guy that the BC Liberals really necessarily are hoping are going to announce they're not running again because he's not – He's not one of what we would call maybe the the really um, the problem people within the liberals like Linda Reed. So Linda Reed, who has been around for how many years now? Twenty eight years as an MLA yeah. since nineteen ninety one. Longest Seven, longest serving MLA in the house. No signs that she plans to quit her riding of Richmond South Center. You have Rich Coleman, twenty three years as an MLA out in uh, in Langley. You have Mike DeYoung, 25 years as an MLA, uh, who actually won a by-election against social credit legend uh, Grace McCarthy of Abbotsford. These are people I think that the liberals are hoping will decide to announce that they're not running again and open those ridings up for younger, fresher candidates. And I guess the question is going to be, traditionally in politics, Smitty, when you have a really safe seat, yeah. you know, it just kind of it becomes the personal property of the MLA and they, they it, you know, set someone uh, to take their seat when they leave and it's never used in the way that some people would hope it is used for bright, young candidates who maybe would have a hard time getting elected in whatever riding they, they represent, but who could go into this riding and could, and could be good MLAs rather than just cannon fodder against their opponents in an unwinnable riding for the liberals or whatever party they represent in the election. Yeah, absolutely. I think the liberals need renewal. They need some fresh blood and they need some young people and they need more diversity too. So I think they need more, you know, People from visible minorities, for example, you know, just to step up more young women running more, more young people more generally. So I think when you take a look at some of these safe seats where the liberals would love to put in some fresh young talent in there. They need these people to step aside. And Linda Reed, uh, her name came up in this Doug Lepard report that we mentioned earlier on the alleged spending scandal where she declined to really fully cooperate with the investigation, even though she was speaker when a lot of this this stuff was going down. I think she was a critical person to talk to, to this investigation. And it's just a bad look to see her not cooperating with it. So, And I think even the liberals themselves, I mean, you can tell the body language in some of the liberal uh, handlers in the legislature when there was a scrum the other day where Linda Reed's being chased down the hallway and she's there. She's being asked questions. Why didn't you cooperate in this, this investigation? And even some of the liberal communications people I detected were 
I don't know, almost rolling their eyes over this saying like, oh man, here we go again. 28 years in politics yeah. and she hasn't learned yeah. the simple lesson that you do not run from TV cameras. Yeah. You look guilty as all get out when you run. Stop, say your answer. Even if it's not a good answer, just do it. But there she was, a rolling scrum down the hallway, looking like she was running away from the public. Right. Although uh, you mentioned that the NDP, quick, just quickly tell that story about the, N- the NDP kind of defended her back when she was speaker, right? And you were really going after her for her own, for her expenses. I used to write stories about Linda Reed back when it wasn't fashionable, back when she yeah. was speaker <laughs> and she was spending $750 on a muffin rack and $40,000 on a touchscreen computer terminal for the chamber. And I remember at the time writing these stories and uh, getting a lot of pushback from the new Democrats who were Linda Reed's biggest ally during her time as speaker because she was unpopular in her own party in the liberals because the liberal government was in the middle of austerity. Their liberal speaker was spending like crazy. And it was the new Democrats who were out defending her. I remember John Horgan, uh, the then uh, house leader for the NDP, telling me if I did half as many stories on real reporting issues like pipelines than I did on, on and I won't say the expletive word here, uh, for muffins, as he put it to me, that maybe I'd be doing some real journalism. And there were some other... Uh, that was the old Hulk Horgan, though, was, <laughs> And he was defending Linda Reed. I remember, and we have these quotes down in our in our archives where he said that... Uh, I gave Linda, Lee, Linda Reed a lot of uh, credit for blowing open the doors of transparency and accountability in the Speaker's office, and that's Oof. why he wasn't going to criticize her for spending $40,000 on a touchscreen computer terminal for her chair in the House. Now, it's very fashionable for the New Democrats to make Linda Reed some sort of boogeyman. Where was everyone checking her spending? Why weren't people checking her for corruption? We were. Uh, it was the New Democrats who who kind of kept her from taking the fall for that. So politics is a weird world, Smitty, where your enemies become your friends, become your enemies, depending on what's (laughs) convenient for you. And Linda Reed is now everyone's enemy here, uh, including in her own party. And I think a lot of people are going to push her out until she decides to go. Uh, It could get very messy if she wants to fight that fight all the way to the end. But we'll keep an eye. There are going to be a lot more liberal resignations over the the time, and we'll keep an eye on them uh, as we go forward in the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Read uh, Mike Smith's stories in the province, my stories in the sun. Uh, Make sure you uh, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever podcast format you like, and we will be back with you next week. See you next week.